Good morning, everyone. Today's reading is from Luke 3, starting at verse 1, going through to 18. Luke 3, verse 1, and from the NIV. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable quenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Thanks, Andrew. It's nice to hear little kid noises. I think when you're a parent, you get very paranoid about it and then you get to our age and it's quite nice. We've got a lot happening at the moment, so let's pray that we'll be able to concentrate on this part of the Bible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at this part of the Bible, we pray that you would speak to our hearts. Please reassure us, we ask, with the truth of the gospel. 
please comfort us with the certainty of forgiveness in Jesus. And Lord, please convict us of the need to keep turning back to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What changes when you become a Christian? What is it that changes about you when you become a Christian? How are we different when we put our trust in Jesus and start living for him? What marks out a disciple of Jesus? Is it the way we think? Is it the way we speak? Is it what we do with our possessions, perhaps? Is it the fact that we come to church on a hot summer morning? What visible outward signs are there that show that you do belong to Jesus, that you are a Christian? What changes when you become a follower of Jesus? What remains the same? Keep thinking about these things as you look at this part of the Bible because when we see John and his ministry, we see him interacting with people, telling them how they ought to behave. So what does it mean for us to be a Christian? What does that look like? Becoming a Christian, it involves us doing three things, doesn't it? It involves us saying, firstly, sorry. So it involves us saying, sorry, God. So acknowledging that we have done wrong, that we need forgiveness, that we are sinful human beings. So firstly, we say sorry to God. Secondly, we say thank you to God. We say thank you to God for providing a way in Jesus a way that we can be forgiven, a way that we can have new life, a way that God can see us as righteous when we're not. So we say sorry to God. We say thank you to God. And thirdly, though, we say please, please, God, can you keep working in us and changing us to live for you, to live in a way that is pleasing to you? So becoming a Christian, I think that's what it involves. Sorry, thank you, and please. And another way that you might describe all that is to say that, what we do is we humbly repent. Repent being a bit more of a Bible word. Repent meaning turn around and go the other way. When you're at the traffic light, you see the repent sign, the U-turn sign. Repenting means turning around, going the other way. It means saying sorry, thank you, and please. Humbly doing that. Humble repentance. If our repentance, though, is genuine, if our turning back to God is genuine, then what do other people see us? How can you tell if someone's a Christian? How do other people see that we are a Christian? How do we know that we've changed on the inside? How do you see that day to day? Keep thinking about that as you look at this passage, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 18. In these short few verses, what Luke does is he shows us that work of John, who we call John the Baptist because that's what he did, he baptized people in the Jordan River. And you see him describing to these people what they need to do what it will look like for them to turn back to God. We're looking at um, this part of Luke chapter 3, but let's just do that quick recap because we're claiming this is part of the lead into Christmas, aren't we? So where have we been so far? The introduction in Luke, the first few verses, tells us that Luke is writing this account for Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, it says. In verse chapter 1, verse 3, he says it's an orderly account written so that Theophilus will know the certainty of the things he's been taught or the things he's heard or the things he's knows about Jesus. And then after the introduction, um, the birth of John the Baptist is foretold as Zechariah sees a messenger, Gabriel. And then we flip and we hear about the birth of Jesus being foretold as the same messenger, the same angel, Gabriel, appears then to Mary. And then we're back at John again. 
And we see how that we, we are told about the birth of John and his father getting his voice back and his father singing that song, Zechariah's song. It's all recorded there for you. And then we're back to Jesus again, the account of how Jesus was born. Um, and then you have a little bit about Jesus' teenage years. And then here in chapter three, we're back to John again. It just keeps switching, doesn't it? One to the other. In the 20 verses at the start of chapter three, Luke introduces the work that John the Baptist did. And his work is to prepare the way for the salvation that God has promised. That's John's task. He's born to prepare the way for the salvation that God has promised. But before telling us about the way John prepares the way for Jesus, Luke starts by giving some concrete historical markers because he's writing this for Theophilus. He's anchoring this in history. He's giving us a way, I think, of being able to verify these things. Um, Remember, this is an account of all the things that have been fulfilled, Luke 1 verse 1. And so he has these historical details. He chooses to introduce John in a similar way that the Old Testament prophets are introduced. So the prophets in the Old Testament, you're told who's ruling at the time, and we're told the word of the Lord came to the prophet. Um, The description of who's ruling here is quite long. There's a lot of names, seven I count. So you've got Tiberius, you've got Pilate, there's three tetrarchs, and then there's two high priests. But by giving us seven names of the people who are ruling or leading at the time that John the Baptist started his ministry, by giving us seven names, it makes it very easy to date this, doesn't it, to anchor it into history. And so I reckon we could be fairly confident this is around well, the late 20s, 27 to 29 AD perhaps, But then have a look at 3 verse 1. So in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, this is the time when Israel was under Roman rule. It's yet another point in history where they're waiting for God to save them, waiting for God to intervene. Under the emperor, there were governors, in this case, Pilate. And under the Roman governor, there were compliant Jews, in this case, Herod and his brother Philip. And it says licentious. I don't know much about him. But the title of tetrarch, yeah, it could be, it sounds like you know, um, a ruler over a quarter, or it could just be a title for a, a petty prince, a, a ruler. You'll notice, though, when you look ahead in verses 19 and 20, that you will hear more about Herod and his brother Philip. Verse 2 gives you two more names. Verse 2 tells you during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, which is interesting because there's only meant to be one high priest, and here you've got two names. I think if you look in John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 13, I think it it unpacks there because John tells us that when Jesus was arrested, he was taken first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And I think that's what's happening. I, I presume Caiaphas, yeah, he is the high priest. He's the one but he's operating under the shadow of his father-in-law. And so Luke, well, he just puts it together and goes, well, they're both there, verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. You can see all these little details gives you the history, gives you a way of saying, yes, this is real. This can be verified. Luke's orderly account of the ministry of John the Baptist, though, it begins with this firm anchor in history. He also introduced is introducing at this point the men who will play their part in having Jesus crucified. Did you notice that? 
if you look ahead in Luke chapter 22 and chapter 23, you'll see these main characters playing again. Jesus is arrested. He's brought before the high priest. And then he's taken to the Roman governor, Pilate, who tries to palm him off to Herod. The three men that you were already introduced to here at the start of his gospel. We're still here in chapter 3, though. Verse 2, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord, uh, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the country around the Jordan, preparing a baptism, uh, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah. It does sound like the Old Testament, doesn't it, when the Old Testament prophets are described. And this prophet's message, it calls to mind the song that Zechariah sang when John was born. If you look back in chapter 1, around verse 76, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah declares what his son is going to do, prepare the way for the salvation that God is bringing, prepare the way for the Lord, prepare the way for salvation that comes through the forgiveness of sins. It's just another way that Luke's showing us this fulfilment theme. Jesus will do exactly these things. Um, at his birth, John's father praised God because God would be because he, God would use his son to prepare the way for God's salvation. Jump ahead to Luke chapter two, verse twenty-nine. When Jesus was eight days old, Mary and Joseph brought him to the temple to be circumcised, and in the temple there was the old man Simeon. Verse twenty-nine, two verse twenty-nine. The sovereign, sovereign Lord, as you have promised. You now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Here's Simeon seeing baby Jesus, recognizing God's salvation. The one who will bring the glory, bring, bring glory to God's people, the Israelites. The one who will bring light to everybody else. Jesus is God's salvation. And John the Baptist is the prophet who prepares the way for Jesus, for God's salvation. In chapter 3, watch how John does his work. So three, second half of verse 2. The word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So it echoes Zechariah's song, Salvation Through the Forgiveness of Sins. Luke shows us that John's acting out the fulfillment of what Isaiah the prophet spoke about. So if you look at verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the, in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley will be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads will be made straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. The civil engineers are still stuck on verses 4 and 5. Read it all, keep going. But there's John preparing the way for God's salvation, fulfilling all these Old Testament expectations. John is the one who's paving the way, knocking down all the obstacles, filling in the potholes, smoothing the way for mankind to see God's salvation. It's this picture of like building a highway back to God, a way back to God, a highway back to him, smooth and clear. But now look at how John prepares for God's salvation. What he does is he warns that judgment is coming. And he calls for repentance. That's how he prepares. That's how he builds this highway, warns people. 
judgment's coming, calls for repentance. So verse 7, John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. That would definitely make you come back for more, wouldn't it? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There's no beating around the bush here. He's saying God is going to judge. Turn back and show signs of the fact that you're repenting. God's wrath, God's anger, God's judgment is coming, so act fast is basically what he's saying. Produce fruit in keeping with with repentance. Show outward signs that you're turning back to God in your hearts. Um, Remember where we started, thinking about what changes when you become a looking at John preparing the way for Jesus and what he expects people to do when they repent and come back to God. Um, he goes on to say, I think in verse 8, don't put any confidence in your heritage. I think he's particularly speaking to the Jews. So verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with, the, with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. It's like he's saying, don't think you're any better off because your dad's a minister or don't think you're any better off because you're a real Jew descended from Abraham. That's There's nothing in status like that. You've got to show yourself that you're repenting and coming back to God. And there is a bit of a pun, I think, on the words stone and children. They sound the same. So John's saying um, God could make children... Uh, John says God could make children of Abraham out of stones, kind of playing on words there. But he's saying it's not about your status, your descent. This is about bearing fruit that shows you've repented. So read on, verse 9. The axe has been laid at the root of the trees. A tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. There's this promise of judgment. You're not producing fruit. You burn up. So how does John prepare the Israelites or the Jews for God's salvation? Well, he declares judgment's coming and he calls them to turn and come back to God. And if you back it up a bit to verse 7, you'll see there that John was baptising those who repent. What's happening there? Well, the word baptise, it's the Greek word for wash. So he's washing people who repent. He's doing that in the Jordan River. Um, it's like this is an outward sign of God at work in them. I think it would, well, when, historically it would seem that um, the Jews were used to this idea of baptising. Maybe when Gentiles decided they, want to be, uh, decided they want to become Jewish, they'd baptise them and they'd circumcise the men. And I guess it's like saying Gentiles need to be washed, need to be baptised before they can be on the inn. But John calls the Jews, the people who are already on the inn, calls them to be baptised. John's baptism, it's not what they would expect normally. This is a a baptism of repentance. This is a sign that they're coming back to God. How do you produce fruit in keeping with repentance? Well, in this case, you'd be baptised by John. But then what else do you do to show that you're genuinely repentant? Uh, Luke shows us how John explained what repentance will look like to these people. So verse 10, they say, what should we do then? And verse 11, John answered, everyone who has two shirts should share them with one who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. What is the fruit in keeping with repentance? Well, sharing what you have. So if you're 
brother or sister doesn't have a Hawaiian shirt for Christmas Day, share one. If we well, can't really share food unless you've done the TAFE course, but John's saying, like, if you're really repentant, you'll see it. You'll be sharing. Share your, food, your, your clothes, share food. Then he gives another example in verse 12. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Verse 13, don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. So the tax collectors, I take it they're the Jews who are collecting the tax to give to the Romans, so they're the bad guys. They're the traitors almost. Um, they have nothing to lose with overcharging and ripping people off because they're already in the bad books. And John says to them, well, if you're going to repent, then do an honest job. Don't cheat. You'll see that you're coming back to God, that you're repenting if you change your ways, if you become honest, act in a way that's appropriate. First example of fruit in keeping with repentance, share with those who need. Second example, do an honest job and don't cheat others. There's a third example he gives in verse 14. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. So the John, the, 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 the soldiers come to John and say, what are we to do? And John doesn't say, well, become a pacifist and give up your job. No, he goes, don't abuse your position. Don't extort money from people. Don't treat people badly. He's given three examples of what repentance might look like, what the fruit of repentance might look like. And I think the passage closes on a fourth possible example. So verse 18, um, with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added to this to them all. He locked John up in prison. I think this is like, it could be an example. If, if Herod was to repent, if he was to come back to God, Herod, who's half Jew or part Jew or Jew, if he was to repent, it would mean undoing the wrong he's committing to his brother and with his sister-in-law. What does repentance look like? Well, John's showing us what it looks like. Three examples, one counterexample, I suppose. Repentance, it doesn't mean cutting yourself off from the world and living in a, a convent or a closed community or something like that. It doesn't, repentance doesn't involve following religious practices like going to church. That's not an outward sign of genuine repentance. Repentance is more, it is more than just feelings. Repentance is more than just a mental assent to the truth that God exists or that Jesus is real there's a practicalness to repentance. You can see it in a person. Real repentance is visible and tangible. The soldier's concern for God will be expressed in their concern for others and the way they treat them. The tax collector's repentance towards God will be visible in the way they do their job honestly. And those who turn to God will actively share with those who have nothing. You can see what's happening, can't you? John's describing what repentance should be like. He's saying judgment's coming. Turn back to God, and this is what this is what it might look like for you. Um, and there's echoes here of other passages you'll come across later in Luke. And there's one I'm thinking of in particular. It's in chapter ten. Jesus now, not John. Jesus is talking with an expert in the law in chapter ten, um, and it's in that context he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, the outsider who actually does a good turn the Good Samaritan parable, verse 25 of chapter 10, an expert in the law asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds with another question in verse 27. Uh, no, in, in verse 26, he says, 
do what's written in the law. And in 10 verse 27, the expert in the law answers, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what I need to do. And verse 28, Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do that and you'll live. And then he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is how, this is what it will look like for you to love your neighbor. It's this picture all the way through Luke of what repentance looks like. Um, John the Baptist calls for visible signs of turning back to God. Back in Luke chapter 3, verse 10, the people ask, what must I do? And John gives them some very practical, down-to-earth, real examples of what it will look like for their life to change. But remember, John is not where this story ends. John the Baptist is the opening act. He's preparing the way for God's salvation. Jesus is God's salvation. So verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah or the, or the Christ. Verse 16, John answered them, I baptise with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John's baptism is by water in the Jordan River, It's just a sign of the washing, the baptism that's coming. Jesus will baptise with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that makes you think, doesn't it? If John's call for repentance generated real change in people, how much more will Jesus' call for repentance result in real change on the inside, on our hearts? But we mustn't forget the way verse 17 goes as well. So verse 16 finishes with, he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand, this is Jesus, to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Here's John saying, when Jesus comes, he'll separate the good from the bad and he'll burn up the rubbish. And then verse 18 And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. You don't often think of judgment as being good news, do you? But it is. Jesus, he will separate what's good from what's waste. Jesus will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's a picture of a harvest. It's a picture of judgment. Judgment is part of the gospel message. It's part of the good news. Without judgment, will you you can't appreciate the good news. Evil needs to be dealt with, needs to be punished. Wrongs have to be set right for it to be good news. So when the day of God's wrath comes, when Jesus arrives, when he returns, he will judge. But you won't be standing back thinking, this is not fair. You'll recognise it as being right and fitting and bringing glory to God. And we know that the only reason we escape this unquenchable fire is because of God's incredible mercy and forgiveness in Jesus and his death in our place. So here's John. He's preparing the way for this salvation that will come in Jesus. Um, He's preparing the way for us to be able to understand the salvation that's in Jesus. Jesus is God's salvation. Jesus is God's appointed judge. And Jesus demands repentance of us. We need to turn back and acknowledge that he is God. Do we understand what real repentance looks like? Well, I guess you could say it begins with responding to the word of the Lord. I mean, that's 
happens with John. That's what happens with the Old Testament prophets. And it's true. That's how it begins. Repentance begins by responding to the truth of God's word. And what follows from hearing God's word is a change in our mind and our heart that God works in us as we're convicted of our sin and driven to want to change, to live for God. And what follows next is those outward signs. That's what's happening in our heart. And that's the most visible thing for us to see in each other and in ourselves. But repentance isn't a a once-in-a-lifetime event. Repentance is something which we do constantly. We keep doing. In in chapter 4 of Luke, we'll read about the way Jesus was tempted and didn't give in once, but that's not us. We continue to stumble. And each day we have reasons to turn back to God, reasons to repent and ask God for forgiveness, to say sorry, thank you, please. So for us, repentance, it's an ongoing willingness to do that, an ongoing willingness to keep coming back to God. Um, We're each built differently. I think some of us need to be reminded again and again and again of the genuine forgiveness, the complete forgiveness that God offers us. Some of us are like that. We just need that reassurance constantly. Others of us, well, we need to be reminded again and again and again of the judgment of God and the fact that our actions do matter and that we do need to repent. We're built differently and some of us keep flipping between those two extremes, don't we? But repentance is what we do to become a Christian. Sorry, God, thank you for Jesus. Please help me live for you. And repentance is something we do constantly as we live as a Christian. What changes when you become a follower of Jesus? That's how we started this morning. What changes when you become a follower of Jesus? The way God sees us changes. God sees us as righteous when we're not. That's a massive change. That happens through Jesus' death in our place. What marks us out as disciples of Jesus? Well, John's given you some practical examples of what it looks like to live for God. And as you look at each of those examples, I'd say it's a difference in the way you treat each other, the way you treat other people. So as Christmas rolls around again this year, and as we remember the birth of Jesus, just you know, keep thinking ahead. Think about the repentance that's required to live with Jesus as your king. Think about what that would look like. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Luke's gospel. Thank you for the way that he reminds us of the truth about Jesus. Lord, thank you for the way that he keeps showing us the fulfillment of your promises and your plans. Father, we thank you for your salvation in Jesus, the way that his death atones for our sin, the way that his life gives us the hope of eternal life. Lord, we ask for each one of us here, we pray that we would be genuinely repenting each day, turning back to you. Father, we are sorry for the ways we ignore you. We thank you for Jesus, and we ask you to keep working in us. In Jesus' name, amen.